You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Aaron Fishman. We're still on the NBA playoff beat as we move to the Eastern Conference semifinals with a focus on the Cavaliers-Hawks series, a rematch from last postseason. To discuss the Eastern Conference's number one seeded Cavs, we've brought on Jacob Rosen, longtime sports analytics writer for outlets such as Hardwood Paroxysm, Nylon Calculus, and the Cleveland website Waiting for Next Year. As a young boy, sports were off Jacob's radar until his dad came home with a Jacob's Field sweatshirt, his name on full display. Once he was shown that Cleveland's baseball team played there, he was hooked for life. In our first of two interview segments, the terrific Lang Whitaker of NBA.com, NBA TV, and GQ discusses the series from the Hawks' perspective. Welcome, Lang. This is your second appearance, and we're really happy to have you. Yeah, I can't believe you guys didn't cancel the podcast after my first one, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back. That was definitely a high point having you on. It was a lot of fun. You're really generous with your time and obviously know a lot about basketball. And the playoffs are so entertaining this year. Granted, it's a little bit more competitive in the East. And so we're talking about your Hawks again. Atlanta can be really streaky at times. We saw this against Boston. And then in game one, they stormed all the way back from 18 down. Then seemingly ran out of gas late in the fourth quarter after that big comeback. They were kind of playing catch up the whole game. But do you think that they can reasonably sustain such strong play for longer periods of games, that's been an issue. Yeah, I, I mean, all season long, the Hawks, these moments where they, you know, they get down 10 points, 15 points, and, and then have to come back. And a lot of times during the season, they were able to come back during during regular games. But, what, you know, when you get down 18 points to the best team in the conference, it's, it's really, really hard to come back. Um, I thought in that game one, you saw what Mike Budenholzer is so good at, is he kind of mixes and matches until he finds something that works. And, you know they they were struggling and just couldn't really find that lineup and then and then Schroeder all of a sudden was was just red hot and you know you saw Budenholzer go with Schroeder a lot down the stretch and just try to try to get the the best five guys out there he could wh- whoever it was I mean even if that means you're you're sitting Jeff Teague in crunch time that's what happens sometimes with this team um, and the players know it they they're they're all part of that so um, like you said last year it was sort of a totally different thing. Um, you know, the Hawks, by the time they get to the conference finals, um, most of those guys had been injured at some point. Uh, I think everybody except Corver had been injured by the time they started playing Cleveland. And then Corver got injured against Cleveland. So um, this year they're they're healthy. And, uh, you know, I think if you look at it as a Hawks fan, you look at it and you say, well, didn't shoot the ball particularly well, didn't seem to play their best game um, defensively either, especially rebounding the ball against Cleveland and still were in that game and had a shot, had a lead in the fourth quarter. So uh, I, I think that's a, if you're a Hawks fan, that's the bright side you look at, you know, um, maybe when we get back home, 
things go your way a little bit more, but uh, you can compete, and, and it's not going to. It doesn't have to be a, a blowout every time you play the Cavs. On your first appearance on our show, you spoke a lot about the last postseason's head-to-head matchup. Obviously, Kevin Love didn't play in that series. What are some likely differences between last year's playoff matchup and this one? I think, well, health is a big part of it. The Hawks are just healthier. Um, so you don't have to, you know, last year it had a, something was wrong with his finger and he, he never really said what it was. Um, but he wasn't shooting the ball like he did during the regular season. Um, and uh, I think that's one way that the Hawks will take advantage of, of so, sort of what's a mismatch for them, not not having that size and, and the rebounding that they have. Um, if Horford's knocking down those 18 footers, I think that, that brings people out, um, makes them come out and play him. Um, the other thing I think that can be an advantage for the Hawks is, you know, last year they had Damari Carroll to try to defend LeBron and Damari was hurt and banged up and Bazemore actually played a lot against him. Um, Bazemore is a, a little bit more dynamic offensively, I think, than, than Damari was last year. And, uh, you know, you know, there's there's that saying: the best defense is a good offense. I, I think if you make LeBron work a little bit harder on that end, maybe that that helps you in the long run as well. And and last night, Budenholzer was trying a lot of different things. He he had some lineups where he had one lineup where Paul Millsap was playing center, um, where he went really small. I think he has a little bit more versatility this year with Cephalosha being healthy, um, that he can go to these lineups where where there's a, um, you know two or three small forwards basically in there at the same time. The one thing I thought that was sort of interesting in game one that the Hawks have got to figure out some way it happened last year in the playoffs and it happened in game one is Kyle Korver. Um, couldn't get a shot off. I mean, I think he only took one shot in game one. Um, and for the Hawks, if he's not shooting the ball, um, why is he on the court? Cause he, he's not helpful defensively. So there's, there's a lot of things I think from that game one matchup you can look at and, and, see some differences from the way that uh, things were a year ago and um, the Hawks trying to find ways to to take advantage of those things. One dynamic that isn't necessarily different on paper is rebounding. Tristan Thompson, still a beast, particularly on the offensive glass. The Hawks, still a poor rebounding team. But the teams were relatively even all game in rebounding and offensive boards, also relatively close in second chance points. Do you think that's still an area where Cleveland holds a clear advantage? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, Thompson's so uh, relentless on those boards. And the Hawks, you know, part it's part of the, what they do is they, they spread the floor and they, they shoot a lot of jump shots. They don't really drive to the basket that much. And part of spreading the floor means they, they, there's usually maybe one guy underneath the basket. So a shot goes up. Um, it's usually one guy against two or three trying to get those rebounds. You know, if you make the shots, it doesn't matter. If you miss a shot, it's like the Hawks are doing in game one. There's a lot of rebounds to be had. And I think uh, the way that uh, Cleveland and Thompson specifically dominated those boards. Um, I, you know, Mike Budenholzer said in, when they were playing, I guess after they, they played Boston, beat Boston in round one, he said that in round two there was going to be a role for Chris Humphreys and with the Hawks. And then, he, and then he didn't play in game one. But to me, it seems like that might be a spot where you put in Humphreys and just ask him to just go after rebounds, just crash the boards time after time and get a body on Tristan Thompson. Um, you know, Humphreys um, averaged double-figure rebounds a couple years ago, and 
I think that's something maybe where you say, look, we need, we need you. This is what, what you're here for. Let's uh, come out and contribute to the team in this way. But they've, they've got to find some answer other than just letting Cleveland, you know, out rebound them by 10 or 15 rebounds a game. This one's about the one with swag, Dennis Schroeder. Shrewd move by Budenholzer. I just <laughs> wanted to say that, pun intended. But it's kind of interesting that dynamic between um, Schroeder and Teague. You can't really play both on the court at the same time, I'm assuming, given the matchup difficulties, at least for long stretches at a time. And so Budenholzer, he went with what was hot, what was working. They were giving Schroeder that three, and he was just hitting it. Five of ten from there, and he was also driving, getting what he wanted at the basket or dishing out to someone else. I think that that showed a lot of balls uh, by Budenholzer to rest Teague, only playing one minute in that fourth quarter. And uh, only one point in the entire second half. But just tell us a little bit more about that dynamic and how it'll work going forward. I'm sure Teague will get going at some point. Yeah, that, you know, all season long, that was sort of the, for the Hawks, that uh, having those two guys, they make each other more valuable in a way because there's nights, and there, there was plenty of nights during the season where Jeff Teague didn't play down the stretch or Jeff Teague didn't play in the fourth quarter because Schroeder was having one of those games. And he doesn't have one of those games every night. There's there's plenty of nights where Schroeder doesn't play in the fourth quarter or when Schroeder just plays a few minutes uh, just to give Teague a rest and then Teague comes in and, and closes out. But uh, having those two guys, having those options there for, for Budenholzer is so so valuable. And I think it's something a lot of teams don't have is, is you, you're going to find one of those guys is going to be hot pretty much on any night. So it's just finding which guy gets hot. Um, Schroeder's not going to hit five or ten threes in, in every game the rest of this series. Um, I think they'll probably let him keep taking those shots if I'm Cleveland. Um, but Schroeder did – look, he, he, he got to the rim a lot. Uh, he was probably their best offensive player last night. And it's a, But it is an interesting dynamic the way those two guys um, – they seem okay with it too all season. You know, if a guy is hot, he gets to play. If a guy's not hot – um, the other guy's going to play and close out the game. Um, yeah. And they did it all year. One thing also about Schroeder, and I'm sure you probably would agree with this, even though he put up great stats at the end, he got a little bit loose with the ball. He still is showing his inexperience. Did you see that too? Yeah, that. I mean, that's that's been another problem all year. And that's one of the reasons I think you don't want um, you don't want to trade <laughs> one of those guys during the season because there's plenty of times where – Schroeder would uh, would make decisions that probably a veteran point guard wouldn't make. Um, the one thing Schroeder has that you kind of you you guys you know you you call him the guy with swag. He has a lot of swag. He's a we got that from uh, you too, by the yeah. way. Yeah, so you you should he, take credit for that. He's one of the swaggiest players in the NBA, other than <laughs> I guess Nick Young. Um, but uh, he's aggressive, and he, he, you know he, that's something he pretty much has every night. And I think with Teague, sometimes that's what he doesn't have. That's what he lacks is that aggressiveness, um, at least consistently. Um, and I think uh, when when Teague doesn't play that aggressively, that's when you bring in Schroeder and the other way around. Um, I, I think, but that's also why you don't trade one of those guys during the season. It's it's a kind of a unique yeah. combination, but they they really complement each other very well. Just a quick follow-up about Teague, something I was curious about. He was a 40% three-point shooter, but sometimes they give him a lot of room. Is that a shot that you'd like him to take, or is it, is he does he shoot such a high percentage because he really goes off of feel and he knows what's best? 
I don't know what he shot last season, but this season he was a much better three-point shooter. I don't, I don't think he shot 40%. It was quietly he, – he improved a lot this season on three-pointers. And he didn't – he doesn't force it. He doesn't take a ton of them. Um, a lot of them are those plays where he, he's trying to lob it inside to Millsap or Horford, and the defense backs off to try to double the the pass, the the uh, entry pass, and he'll just pull up and take the three. You know, But I, I like it when T gets to the rim. He can get around pretty much anybody – um, especially on a switch, when when a bigger guys guarding him, he can mm-hmm. get to the basket, yeah, and uh, and draw fouls, make layups. He's a, he's a really good player in the paint, um, but a lot of times, you know, when that the Hawks' offense is spreading the court, passing the ball, cutting back cuts, that kind of thing. So when Teague plays that style of play, it sort of takes them out of their offense a little bit. On the other side of the ball. The Cavaliers obviously have so many weapons offensively, but the Hawks were a great defense this year, second in the league in defensive rating. They have uh, Tavo healthy this year. But uh, how are they containing LeBron, or how are they trying to? I I know that his three-point shooting was down this year, so teams have been trying to goad him into taking threes to a certain extent, and they're putting Bazemore a lot on him, but how is it working out so far? Yeah, well, LeBron was kind of making those threes in game one. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if that was the best strategy, at least in that game. But uh, I thought, you know, in game um, in game one, that you saw kind of what the Hawks have done, especially since, like, January. They've been a much better defensive team since January. Millsap and Horford are so good at helping out. Um, and and they're, they're, Millsap has an incredible set of hands. Like, one of the best – I think last year he, was, he finished the – season top five in steals or top 10 in steals he was the only power forward in the top 10 um and this season he was up there again and i think Millsap might have been top three in defensive wins above replacements this season he he was incredible this year for the hawks um him and horford are both so valuable and the way they can they can help out and on switches i mean you saw it a couple times last night horford guarding lebron out on the perimeter and he does a pretty credible job. He can stay with him. Um, you know, LeBron made a couple shots, but Horford blocked a couple shots or not blocked, but, but got close to him. So I think, uh, that's basically what they're doing with LeBron is, is obviously you, you try to limit him. You don't want him to do a lot. The thing that makes LeBron so good is his passing. Um, you know, last night there was five or 10 different plays where they got the ball out of his hands, but LeBron made passes that, most players in the NBA can't make um, like one-handed, you know, baseball passes from one corner of the court to the other. Yeah, the kind of passes like they might leave him a tiny little hole to make a play, and not many players in the NBA can make a play in that space. And LeBron's maybe the only guy who can make those passes. And you know, that's when when you play great defense and you leave this tiny little thing, and and that happens. Um, you know, you just got to tip your hat to the guy. You're right about Horford being a really important part of the the team, but he's struggled offensively in many of the games and clearly not a focal point a lot of the time. Paul Millsap dropped 45 against the Celtics in Game 4, but other than that, he's struggled on offense. Do you think either or both of those guys are going to turn it around? Um, I think the Hawks probably hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, they, the thing that made um, Horford so good during the season and, and – you know, the past couple of years, he he got a really good fifteen to eighteen footer, um, very consistent on that from usually around the free throw line um, or on the wings. And this year, he kind of extended that out to three pointers. He made a I think about one three pointer a game. 
and teams leave him open for those threes and, and he'll take them to try to spread the floor a little bit more. Um, if, I mean, the dogs really use a stretch five, which you don't see that much in the NBA. Um, but Horford hasn't been making those jump shots and he hasn't even been taking them. I think that to me is a little bit more worrisome when you watch them play. Um, you know, it, I, I think if he's going to um, at least take the shot, uh, that kind of keeps the defenses honest, uh, but but he hasn't even been really been pump faking or taking those shots or looking for those shots, and I think that's something they got to get him back into. Millsap's kind of a hit or miss guy all season. That you know, there's been games where he gets 25 points. There's games where he gets nine points. Um, he's probably to me their best all around player. Um, offensively, he's the one guy who can create a shot against pretty much anybody. Um, you know, if it's a smaller guy, he'll take him in the post. If it's a bigger guy, he can dribble around him. And uh, uh, his three-point shooting is pretty good. Um, and he, he's there's hot and cold nights for him. Um, you know, the Celtics, some of those matchups were good for him. Marcus Smart, whatever reason, had his number when, when they put him on him. But um, I think Paul will have a game in this series where, where he kind of shows what he can do too. But, you know, that's kind of been a thing with the Hawks the last two seasons. There's games where – Jeff Teague has a great night. There's games where Mike Scott comes off the bench and has a great night. You never really know who it's going to come from. Usually one guy gets hot. Last night it was Dennis Schroeder. Um, I don't know who it'll be in game two, but but somebody unexpected from game to game usually gets going. Yeah, it's tough. Atlanta was so close to winning game one, it seemed like. But a lot of people have the sense that Cleveland is just too strong and too talented for Atlanta to really stand much of a chance. Where do you weigh in on that? And what are your predictions? How many games do you think this one will go? I don't know. I think the Hawks are going to win one at home. I don't know if they'll win one at Cleveland. Cleveland's really good. And I think, you know, it, all season long, we everyone talked about all this stuff going on around them and the arguing and the chemistry and all these other things. But they just quietly won two games for every game they lost pretty much. I think they're a lot better than they get credit for. And uh, I kind of feel like they they knew that there was this other level they could play at when the postseason came around. They seemed bored a lot during the regular season. And I think now they're ready, ready to, to kind of play at this highest level that they can play at. So I, I think Cleveland and uh, I'll say six to be safe. Um, but, you know, for the Hawks, um, I think just winning a couple games in this series would almost be considered a, a moral victory. Um, you know, I, I don't think they can beat Cleveland in a seven-game series. I think Cleveland's a better team. But I think they can compete. And uh, I think you saw that in game one, that, that they competed and they, they made it closer. And I think they'll probably win a game here or there. But but I think Cleveland's a better team and is going to win the series. That's fair. As a selfish basketball fan, I really want to see as many games as possible, though. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, our right as basketball fans. We always want to see as many games as possible. We've earned it. We've put in the time watching exactly. these games, so why not? Thanks again. Always enjoy talking to you. No problem, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Just want to talk some cash with you. Uh, first, let's get your general Game 1 reactions. I know it's just one game, but it seemed like the game was pretty in hand for most of it for the Cavs, though it did get a little bit scary near the end of the third quarter and into the beginning of the fourth. 
Uh, do you have any quick reactions to that? Some sentiments that you might carry over to the future games of the series? Yeah, totally. You know, it, it felt like a very similar vibe to the Pistons series where, you know, there were times where the game was close and obviously the Cavs uh, can find things to correct from that really, really terrible six or eight minute stretch, you know, covering the late third and early fourth. But ultimately, when it came down to the wire and this game was tied and the Hawks took the lead the last five minutes, uh, the Cavs just were too much. And that was the story of the Pistons series, where when it came down to it, the Cavs were just too powerful. Uh, they had the experience, they have LeBron, uh, and things got carried away in the last couple of minutes. So that's the encouraging thing for the Cavs is that they can you know, lollygag for a few minutes here or there, and they obviously can't do that against some of the Western Conference teams. Uh, But in the East, it still seems they have the ability to pull away when they really need to. And obviously a big advantage that the Cavs would have over all of the teams in the NBA is LeBron James. And that looks especially difficult for the Hawks to guard. The Hawks threw a lot of looks at him in Game 1, switching between Bazemore guarding him, sometimes Tuffalosha. And I think ultimately in the second half, they mainly stuck with Paul Millsap. So what do you think worked for the Hawks guarding LeBron James and what didn't? And do you think that's something that the Cavs will be able to continue exploiting throughout the series? It seems like they mixed up their, you know, not just the primary defender, but also their strategy and pick and roll strategy with LeBron too. Sometimes letting him, you know, get a little space. There were many times where he passed up what would have been wide open shots, but also he, he only had one free throw attempt. And that's one of the main things you usually point to with LeBron is, is him getting, you know, eight to 10 or at least, you know, five or six free throw attempts every game, especially in the playoffs. So from that perspective, it's it's the big disadvantage for the Hawks of when they lost Mari Carroll. Uh, Carroll is one of the top, you know, five or 10 guys in the NBA that has the size and versatile ability to defend LeBron in many different scenarios, both on the perimeter and the post. The Hawks just don't really have some individual that can do that all the time. So they're going to have to keep mixing up the coverages um, and if they keep giving LeBron a full head of steam, he'll get more free throws in other games and he'll keep distributing. Obviously, it wasn't the greatest, you know, overall performance in LeBron. Uh, and, and Love had his gigantic share of early first half shooting woes and, and injuries late in the game. But when it comes to finding a guy that can consistently guard LeBron the entire game, I'm not sure what they can do besides just mixing up their coverages, mixing up their things, giving him different looks, not letting him be comfortable, trying to take him out of somewhat of a zone from just picking them apart left and right. So with Paul Millsap guarding LeBron James in that second half, the Hawks were forced to have a smaller defender. And a lot of the time it was Ken Bazemore guarding Kevin Love. He wasn't making his shots, but he was really aggressive. That's something I'm sure you like to see from a Cavaliers perspective. How's he doing right now with both his aggressiveness and the couple injuries he incurred in game one? Uh, everything, you know, the reports have been from from practice today, from, uh, you know, from the media, is that Kevin seems fine. The Cavs are not making a big deal of either the shoulder or the leg injuries that he suffered late in that game. So things seem mostly fine with regards to his health. Um, you know, for Kevin, it's, you know, he's going to get the shots. He got a lot of shots. He got a lot of wide open space against the Pistons series as well. You know, it's tough enough for teams to find somebody that can have the size and ability uh, and, you know, kind of stretchiness defensively to guard LeBron, let alone a Kevin Love at the same time. They're just such an interesting pair to defend against. You know, I don't think there's too many concerns over Love shooting, uh, you know, him going as poorly as he did in the first half and going one of eight from twos. 
Um, and, and that's the thing you hope, you know, against the Kent Bazemore is that Love would have that advantage, you know, working on the block, uh, getting some, some you know, corner shots like he does, you know, like he likes to do like a Tim Duncan type move. So I, I think there will be more success with that in the future. And when you, when you look at it, you know, Kyrie made some some shots in this game, but the Cavs weren't as sharp as they had been at times. You know, they, they lollygags, they they did not have the in- defensive intensity they needed in the third and the fourth. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room for improvement that, you know, makes it very encouraging that they were able to then, you know, focus so intently late in the game and still come up with an easy win, as easy as it was. You used the term lollygagged a couple of times, and obviously that's not very encouraging. You did mention that it, it's easier to get away with that type of stuff against the Eastern Conference. Later on, if they do make it to the finals, they, they could pay for that. But what is the key to being more consistent throughout the games and not letting up and finishing strong? Yeah, for me, it was it's it's specifically on the strategy of how they uh, defend Dennis Schroeder, Schroeder and uh, Kent Bazemore. With those two players, they have the athleticism on the wing uh, that the Cavs can sometimes struggle against, and and they were getting open looks. Uh, Schroeder was just picking them apart with the dribble drive, um, and Kyrie and other players. It wasn't just Kyrie, but the Cavs were not prepared for it. They were not prepared for for Schroeder to have as impressive as an offensive game as they had. And so when they go back to the drawing board, the Cavs just have to strategize a solution where they're not sagging off those guys, where they're not letting the Hawks kind of run around them on the offensive end. And, and the Cavs just weren't uh, ready for it. They weren't consistently you know, attacking them with a strategy on the defensive end. So when they look at, you know, playing these Hawks and they look at playing, you know, whether it's the Raptors, the Heat in the next round or one of the, the top teams out West, it's a matter of it comes down to the granular strategy of how do you stop the most important offensive weapons. And the Cavs have consistently done that with not letting Kyle Korver uh, take shots against them. You know, if you look at the stats, both the regular season, last year's postseason and in game one with Korver only getting one shot in 37 minutes. The Cavs have done some really good parts of their strategy. Uh, but what was missing, obviously, was in a plan and an attack to also keep in mind, you know, Schroeder's. Uh, dribble drive ability, Bazemore's athleticism, and the open looks that that can create. Uh, and so the Cavs have to find a better solution for that. Uh, perhaps it's, it's sticking Adel Badova on him more directly. It's not sagging off of those picks. It's mm-hmm. being more attentive of, of the screen man, of the guy who's kicking out for the three. Um, but it's all correctable things is, is, the, is the thing to know is that it looked like they just weren't doing anything consistently. They weren't ready for it. Uh, give them another few, you know, obviously it's every other day of the series, but but now that they know that's coming, uh, obviously Millsap and Horford, you know, can have much better games, and Corvert uh, can get hot at any point. Uh, but the Cavs have to feel good about it. at least that uh, being the only thing that killed them, and it, it didn't really it wasn't fatal in Game One. Yeah, the thing you said about Corvert, Lang Whitaker in the first half of the episode also highlighted that in nearly 37 minutes of action, only one shot attempt, which you have to be thrilled if you're the Cavaliers and. And he also talked about maybe reducing Corver's amount of playing time if he's only going to be able to get one shot off because he's not giving that much on the defensive end of the ball. One thing we also talked about with Lang that we want to talk about is rebounding. On the offensive and defensive rebounding side of things, the Cavaliers hold a decided advantage this year. They were one of the best in each of those categories percentage-wise, whereas the Hawks were one of the worst. Tristan Thompson, obviously a monster, 
on the offensive glass, did it again in game one. Strangely enough, the Hawks were pretty even in second chance points and offensive and defensive rebounding in game one. But to what extent do you expect that disparity to start to show as the series progresses? I think it will certainly even out. And I think all the calls for reduced playing time for for Corver and I've even seen it for Al Horford too, uh, are, are pretty foolish at this point in time. The, the Hawks are, you know, they were a 60 win team last year. They're 48 win team this year. They're, they're a very good competitive squad. And there are Cavs fans out there that aren't giving them better. They're a very good team. Uh, and the Cavs have to take them seriously because as, as we saw, you know, this game was, you know, in doubt, you know, going down the stretch, the Cavs can't just rest on the laurels like that. They have to, to strategize and plan better. But I would expect the, the Cavs to too, uh, maintain that rebounding advantage a bit more. I don't see Paul Millsap grabbing the offensive boards that he did in game one uh, very often. I see the Cavs you know, being a bit more focused and sharp on the defensive end uh, to corral those boards, to not let you know, kind of a little bit lack of uh, planning and effort. And perhaps that's the thing that happens when you have a week off. Is yeah. is not ready for it. You're, you you overthink it. Uh, you're not razor sharp, at, you know, with your focus. And and I would expect the Cavs to maintain more of a rebounding edge uh, with the next few games. And, and yeah, I'd also expect you know Teague and Horford and, and Corford to play play better. It's it's going to happen. Those are very good players that will get better. Uh, Schroeder won't be as hot as he was. It will be a return to the mean. They just can't let up. Uh, they can't just count on you know their fourth quarter heroics again. The Cavaliers are playing really good offensive team basketball, but Kyrie Irving is shouldering, um, a, I, I shouldn't say a heavy load because really everyone's been scoring, but he's putting up a lot of points matched up against Teague and Schroeder. Should we expect that to continue? Oh, totally. And, you know, that's, that was my favorite stat of the first round was how it was the first time in LeBron's career he didn't lead his team in scoring in a playoff series. Uh, you know, this is the Kyrie show, and this is a better Kyrie than we've seen all season long. You know, the Cavs fans were going disgruntled uh, with uh, both his lack, perhaps, of, of aggression at times, his shooting percentages. Uh, same for Kevin Love as well. But when Kyrie is attacking as well as he did, and I think he's had that advantage against Jeff Teague over the years, um, when he when he's doing that consistently, this is a very different Cavs team than the one we saw in the regular season or that we've seen many times over the last two years. Because Kyrie just wasn't healthy uh, last year in the playoffs when LeBron uh, was at his very best, so this, yeah. this, that's why this Cavs team is so dangerous. Is when Kyrie is is penetrating and distributing and shooting like he can, uh, it's just very hard to score with them. We saw also in the fourth quarter when things started to get a little bit stagnant for the Cavaliers' offense, and they went long stretch without scoring. Kyrie just turned it on when they needed it the most. But they've also been distributing the ball. It's not just like a lot of Kyrie dribbling. They're spacing well, I should say. So they lead the postseason all teams in three-pointers made and attempted. LeBron is just doing an impeccable job of finding his teammates open beyond the arc. They just keep making those threes. Talk about the importance of that. And it's, it's an interesting thing from, from LeBron's perspective. Teams are letting LeBron have some space on the perimeter if he wants to shoot. And, and he hasn't been taking shots that he, he used to in his career. Even in Miami, you could say, in terms of the open space that they've given him on the perimeter time after time. Uh, so that's the scary thing as well, is that the Cavs are as good as they have been right now, while also enabling LeBron, you know, at any point to take a few more open looks himself. And and when he, you know, I remember the classic Kirk Goldsberry line of, of LeBron being one of the most 
overqualified three-point shooters in NBA history. And, and he's had his three-point shooting woes this season, but in the playoffs, you, you don't typically let LeBron take that kind of open shot. So, you know, for the Cavs, this is this is everything fans have wanted to see, and they're seeing it uh, in, in prime playoff mode. And it's what players like J.R. Smith and Channing Fry allow you to do on the court because everybody's a spacer. The only guy that's not is Tristan Thompson, who's eating up the boards anyway. Uh, so for the Cavs, that's the fun part of this lineup. Uh, that's the fun part of being in the playoffs with everyone healthy. Uh, you got everything clicking and, and it could actually be even better, you know, with respect to LeBron shooting uh, some of those open looks and, and Kevin having a better shooting night. Yeah. A guy you mentioned as for helping space the floor is J.R. Smith. I think he sort of sometimes gets a, his reputation clouds people's view of him. People think he's a little bit too hot-headed or full of himself, but he's really found a niche for the Cavs in helping them space the floor. Can you just talk about his impact for the Cavs a little bit more? Yeah, I think, you know, good JR is a very good player in the NBA. You know, troublesome JR is is almost what we saw, you know, um, at one point in the game where, where you know, they were reviewing the flagrant uh, on him uh, at the one point. But JR, you know, has to get credit as well for for Kyle Korver and the team defense that enabled uh, the Cavs to limit him to only one shot attempt all game long. JR is a you know a very you know I don't think anybody ever doubts JR Smith's talent. Um, he's uh, it's amazing you know how much uh, people never doubt that, and yet you know they'll criticize him for for one thing here or there. But when he's on and when he's motivated and when he's in a role like he's been with this team, where he's never forced to do too much. He's never even allowed to do too much really within the context of the team with LeBron or Kyrie distributing or, or Kevin getting the more shots. It's it's very exciting and he gets hot too. You know, any core of a run that could happen, JR could just pull up himself. Uh, that's the danger of this team so much. And it's exciting to see, you know, JR succeeding. You know, last year he had the suspension uh, for the hit on Jay Crowder. Uh, fans were worried about that at one point yesterday, but it was still a very productive night for him overall. And, and you like to see him play within the system, only take one, two, and really almost every single one of his shots was one you liked. There, there were one or two that went in that were just obscene, uh, but that's the kind of shot making ability he has. Finally, before we let you go, we'd like to get your series prediction for the Cavs. And while you're talking about that, can you expound on what the biggest worry for the Cavs might be? I think it's been the same thing against the Pistons, too. As you have seen this Cavs team in this playoff so far not feel maybe challenged for all 40 minutes of the night. Uh, they'll take a lead or they'll they'll start a half slow or a quarter slow, and, and they'll just look like they're trying hard. And that's been a thing for the Cavs a lot of times this season is when they're not in the flow of the offense. Uh, they're slowing things down. They're thinking too much, perhaps. Cavs will you know have a poor shooting night, and they'll have struggles keeping up on the defensive end. Corver will get hot. Schroeder will keep playing well. Uh, Millsap and Horford are, are tremendous players in this league, and, and they'll have better nights. So I, I think the Hawks will at least win a game at home. And so my guess as of now is this series goes five. Uh, the Cavs will you know, have enough firepower when they need it to, uh, but there will be one night where they're just not on it uh, for the entire 48 minutes, and it'll cost them. Jacob, thank you so much again for joining us. Good luck to the Cavs for the rest of the series, and take care. Thanks, guys. 